1: Hello, good friends, good to see you, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and a special welcome to this week's Reporters' Roundtable, at the end of a very busy week on several fronts. At the White House, for only the second time as president, Joe Biden spoke to the nation last night about his second historic trip as president to a war zone, first to Ukraine, this week to Israel, and linked the two as deserving the full support of the United States, and saying that he was going to ask Congress for $100 billion to help both countries defend their democracy. But at the Capitol, it's going to be hard for Congress to respond because two weeks after ousting Kevin McCarthy, the House is still without a speaker. Jim Jordan can't get the votes. Republicans rejected a compromise plan to give the interim speaker a few more weeks. And so far, it looks like nobody else wants the job. And at the courthouse, Donald Trump returned to the New York courtroom, where he's accused of financial fraud. And in Atlanta, former Trump attorney Sidney Powell upset the apple cart by pleading guilty to election fraud and could end up testifying against Donald Trump. Whoa, a busy week, as I said, and lots to talk about for today's panelists. Let's say hello first to Sarah Weyer. Justice Department, National Security, and Washington Accountability Reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Gabe DiBenedetti back with us, national correspondent for New York Magazine and author of the great book about Joe Biden and Barack Obama, The Long Alliance. Hello, Gabe. Welcome back. Morning, Bill. And Philip Bump, uh, one of our regulars, a national columnist for The Washington Post, author of the newsletter, How to Read This Chart, and author of his own great book about the boomer generation, The Aftermath. Hello, Philip. Mr. Press, thank you for having me. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. Hamas' a stated purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Meanwhile, Putin denies Ukraine has or ever had real statehood. When terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. So if we don't stop Putin's appetite for power and control in Ukraine, he won't limit himself just to Ukraine. So Philip, the president spoke for 15 minutes pretty ominously. He called this an inflection point in history. Did he make his case?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the... The effect of his speech, I mean, look, you know, we, we all know that presidential speeches don't carry the weight that they once did. The amount of attention he's going to receive for it is probably fairly muted. Uh, but I think that he, he was hoping to accomplish two things here. The first is he's been at this a long time. I think he does see this as, and justifiably, a moment of, of acute uh, acute, uh, danger for the United States. Uh, and He was trying to make the case both to the American public, but of course to legislators, that, that that was what was happening here. Uh, but this is also in keeping with his longstanding theme. Since he took office, he has highlighted this this conflict between autocracy and democracy obviously manifested in different ways in different places, uh, but also obviously overlapping with his 2024 reelection bit, the way in which he's been trying to frame Donald Trump as an agent on the side of Putin uh, and these other autocratic actors. So yeah, I mean, I, I, think that, that he, he was effective at making his case. I'm not sure how broadly that's going to be heard, but I also think it's important to recognize the political subtext to it as well.
1: Sarah, I was struck by the fact that, um, the president was here to really to, I think, explain to the American people why we had to support Israel so strongly. Within two or three minutes, he had linked Israel to Ukraine. Uh, and that was the theme all the way through. Um, is that, uh, did he do so effectively? I guess, is my question.
0: It seemed like it. And, you know, honestly, the thing we're hearing from the far right over and over has been, why can't Biden articulate why we need to be in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. And they so fully support Israel that it was important for him to be able to tie the two together in order to have any chance of keeping money flowing.
1: Uh, And and wouldn't you argue, Sarah, I mean, at least (laughs) I find, it's hard to argue uh, that we should support democracy in Israel, but not support democracy in Ukraine when both are threatened.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really what he was aiming to do with the speech. It came across repeatedly, um, like you said, in just in a few minutes, that he had to to tie them together so that the money couldn't be separated out. Um, It had to be linked in Americans' minds.
1: Yeah. Uh, And Gabe, it was striking that the president was speaking about his trip to Israel, what, maybe 12 hours after he got off the plane, right? So here's a president who has been To two countries now uh, in the middle of a war, Ukraine first and now now Tel Aviv, uh, Israel and Tel Aviv, and the first president to actually march on a union picket line. Uh, You've written about Joe Biden. Is this what we expect from an 80-year-old president? I think
3: it's important to note that at this point, when Biden is giving speeches like this, he is really talking to a number of different audiences. One of them is undoubtedly the audience of people, as you're alluding to, who have big questions about his fitness for the job, not necessarily right now, then certainly in his in second term. He obviously has to address this age issue every time he opens his mouth, every time he appears in public. He knows that he's not going to give a speech about it. But clearly, there is this message being broadcast to the world look at the vigor with which i could do this job i'm going to war zones He literally put out an ad his election camp re-election campaign did about his trip to ukraine but but the other point here is that this speech was an attempt to yes remind people that he is doing this but to speak to even more audiences than that one uh, as as we've just heard you know he was really making the case to congress specifically that this aid uh, needs to be funded that, that these these two wars need to be supported by the United States but that Congress needs to approve that that money in order for that to be the case more more than that this is a president who thinks in large thematics uh, at, at the risk of sounding overly broad that is really you know he really does want to tell the rest of the world and this has been one of the central goals of his since he became president that the United States does have a role to play as this sort of moral but really power leader uh, in the international system. So he did want to go to Israel for the same reason he wanted to go to Ukraine to show people that the United States does have that role to play. And this speech was a way for him underlining that. So I think every time he opens his mouth, every time he does one of these big set piece events, you have to keep in mind he's really talking to or trying to talk to a number of different people and trying to send Mm -hmm. a bunch of different messages to them which is not always easy for someone who, you know, even before he had all these questions about his age, was not really known as the most deft communicator in Washington.
1: Right. So uh, another theme, Philip, um, we've talked about linking Ukraine and Israel, which you did right from the start. But uh, in his conversations in Tel Aviv, uh, reportedly, and also in his speech last night, uh, he went out of his way to support Israel, but to urge restraint on the part of Israel, in responding, saying basically, don't make the mistakes that we made after 9 right. 11. How does that carry?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, again, I think there's there's a, a mix here of both his experience of pragmatism and, and the politics, right? So it is obviously the case that what happened after 9-11 in the United States was uh, went over the bounds of what would have been useful. Right? I, don't know. I don't know how to say that more judiciously. <laughs> but, right? I, I think that that's generally acknowledged, and it is very much a fair point. Uh, but Joe Biden also represents the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party is less in- enthusiastic about the idea of becoming heavily involved in Israel then is the Republican Party. There's a new polling out from CBS and YouGov that shows uh, that there is stronger support on the right for stepping up, uh, you know, in a robust fashion on behalf of Israel than there is on the left. Joe Biden is trying to navigate his part, his own parties, you know, general skepticism about coming in, you know, with a with full throat endorsement of Israel in, the, in this conflict uh, with with his actual belief that this is what should be done. Uh, so, you know, I mean, look, obviously. Anything that 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 involves conflict in this region is going to be incredibly fraught for any political actor, um, and so mm-hmm. you know I think that Joe Biden's trying to figure out what the path is for through this through this dangerous territory.
1: Uh, Sarah, this this last two weeks of the war in Israel too has presented um, many different challenges for us in the media. Right, I mean, sadly, nineteen journalists have already been killed uh, in in Gaza. In in the fighting, Um, and that's before the ground war starts. Uh, But there's also the challenge of um, how to report and what to report. We saw conflicting stories about this hospital and the death of 500 people uh, in uh, in Gaza, originally blamed on the Israelis, and now it looks like it really did happen. So far as we know, for our intelligence says, as a result of a a failed um, missile. I guess, with, how's the media responding to this? What challenges do you see? Uh, is, is this all part of the fog of war?
0: We have to be careful to not let it be part of the fog of war. I mean, our, our job in general is to cut through the BS and make sure we're providing accurate information. And, you know, we're seeing uh, news outlets really try to take a step back, to independently verify information, not just trust what uh, any government entity is saying. Um, it's going to be there are going to be good times and bad times in this. People are going to make really big mistakes, um, but it's more important right now than ever when so much you know relies on our accuracy uh, for us to take a step back and not worry about being first so much as being right. Um, and we are seeing those internal conversations happen. You know the The balance of which voices even appear in articles or on, um, you know, television has been a big part of internal conversations. You know, do we include Palestinian voices? Do we include Israeli voices? Which ones? Um, it's going to matter a lot uh, what decisions are made.
1: Uh and and Gabe, I don't know whether I—I uh, I doubt that I'm the only one that I've noticed. For the first couple of days, all the front page pictures in every newspaper and on cable television were of civilians killed in Israel as a result of the Hamas shelling. Uh, For the last week or so, every front page had been pictures of civilians in Gaza uh, who are victims of Israeli shelling. Is there the risk that the narrative can change here?
3: Well, the narrative will change as the facts on the ground change. Um, the reality uh, is that this is an ongoing, very fluid situation, and that's why you had, by the way, Biden go to Israel to try to change the course of, of what's happening here.
1: We don't mm-hmm. still
3: know what what's going to come. It seems as if a large ground invasion does, you know, is still in the offing. Um, but, but of course, what's what's on the front page is the latest stuff, and. The risk is that we, we miss taking a step back and remembering that this is all happening as, you know, because of this terrorist attack um, from two weeks ago now, uh, or a little bit less than that. Um, but, but of course, th- it's not a surprise, I think, that, that a lot of the political, domestic political focus has shifted um, toward the, the amount or, or the, the severity of the Israeli response and uh, therefore what's happening on the ground in Gaza. Uh, I think that this is just going to have to be one of those things where that balance is going to shift over time just as a, as a matter of uh, response to the, the reality on the ground.
1: All right. Uh, from the weighty, weighty problems in the Middle East to almost this silly continuing uh, uh, circus in Washington, D.C., uh, here is Jim Jordan yesterday saying, may I lost 20 votes on the first round, 22 on the second. But man, I'm in it to win it. We made
2: the pitch to members on the resolution as a way to lower the temperature and get back to work. Uh, We decided that wasn't where we're going to go. I'm still running for speaker,
1: but I want to go talk with the 20 individuals who voted against me. What do you think, Philip? Is he ever going to make it? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, I, I hate to make any predictions about anything these days, uh, but I, I just don't see how. I mean, especially because now the narrative around this from his from, you know, members of his own caucus is, hey, you know, what? I'm a little tired of getting calls from people bullying me, if not threatening me and my family's lives. Right. I mean, it's just yeah. it is it, it is it's bizarre quite frankly, and I get that Jim Jordan has this, you know, reputation to defend as a bulldog, a pugilist, and yada, yada, yada. Like, I get that. Uh, but at some point, like, look, the writing's been on the wall for a week now, practically, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is, there's no indication that people are going to come around you know he had this press conference this morning very very bizarre press conference in which he didn't really say anything uh but you know he said you know the fastest way to get moving forward is to elect me as speaker and it's like well actually no the fastest way is to figure out who can be elected speaker (laughs) and elect that person you know and move forward on that front so you know i i think there's absolutely an element of hubris here um and the sooner that 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 Speaker-designate Jordan, while we can still use that term, uh, comes to terms with that, I think the the better office caucus will be.
1: Right. Uh, Just to be clear of the timing, we started our panel about 8.30 in the morning, uh, right after Jim Jordan finished his news conference, and he has scheduled uh, yet a third vote for speaker at 10 a.m. later this morning, just after we wrap up. But um, Sarah, Philip mentioned uh, some threats that some members have received. Uh, I want to play a couple of clips here uh, and get your response. Um, First, this is uh, Congressman Ken Buck from Colorado.
2: So far, I've had four death threats. I've been evicted from my office in Colorado um, because the landlord is mad with my uh, voting record uh, on on the speaker issue. Um, And everybody in the conference is getting this. Family members have been approached and and threatened.
1: Uh, And this uh, is a recording uh, that Jake Tapper got at CNN, uh, the wife, uh, uh, this was a phone call made to the wife of so far an unidentified, uh, Republican member of Congress who was not supporting Jim Jordan. Why is your husband such a pig? Why would he get on TV and make an asshole of himself? Cause he's a deep state prick. So what we're going to do is we're going f-
2: to come follow you all over the place. We're gonna be up your ass. You're gonna keep getting calls and emails. I'm putting all your information over the internet now. Everybody else is, and you will not be left alone because you're a husband. You must be a bitch to marry an ugly mother like that.
1: So, Sarah, nobody would blame Jim Jordan for putting these people up to it, Uh, but uh, it does sort of reflect his bullying tactics and doesn't help. Right.
0: well it reflects the tactics we've seen within certain elements of the Republican Party for multiple years now I mean don't forget the amount of pressure that was put on on Mike Pence after the or before January 6th um, and pressure that was put on lawmakers during impeachment not to vote a certain way you've got several people who have said you know of course anonymously that they you know didn't vote to impeach or to convict because they worried for their family's safety. That was in, coming up in the new Mitt Romney book. But, you know, the Republicans who oppose Jim Jordan have to be thinking to themselves that if they vote for him now, this is going to be what life is like in Congress going forward that they're accepting this as a new normal. And Jim Jordan is, is coming out and saying that, you know, he's not behind this, he doesn't support it, that it's wrong, but it's still people speaking in his name doing it. And uh, that has to be really weighing on each of the members. If, they, if they're bullied now and they fall for it, what is the future going to look like? Um, I don't know if this is the moment where everyone kind of stands up to to that division within the party, but it, it's, it's now in... Constant, consistent aspect of public life, and it's not okay.
1: Right. So, Gabe, it looked like uh, at least 24 hours ago, uh, the way out was to say, uh, and this is classic of Congress. Let's just kick the can down the road by giving Patrick McHenry, the interim speaker, uh, power to get some things done while we sort this all out. Uh, boy, that went down uh, in in flames. Uh, how do you, how do you read that? Is it just because they just won't do anything that requires getting a couple of Democratic votes to go along?
3: Well, I mean, you said that that's what it looked like twenty four hours ago. Well, forty eight or seventy six hours ago, it looked like Steve Scalise was going to be the next speaker. <laughs> that's and, true. You know, that's, two weeks ago, it looked like Kevin McCarthy had this wrapped up for a while. I, I, you know. It's definitely true that that a lot of Republicans are wary of going along with Democrats, but it's we shouldn't act as if Democrats are, you know, uh, offering a an olive branch here. They are being very consistent in saying this is your problem. You 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 fix it. Um, I think the reality that we all have to keep in mind is this is going to change a lot in the coming weeks. It's not as if it's Jim Jordan or nothing. There are a lot of members of that of the of the House Republican Conference whose names have been floated as some sort of compromise. Uh, and there's a reason that this hasn't just been wrapped up nicely by kicking the can down the road. A lot of people wouldn't be happy with the McHenry option. So I don't really see a way out of this, especially if Jordan continues promises to continue fighting this. Uh, The McHenry option is a, like you said, kicking the can down the road. That is very Congress, but it's not very this version of the Republican conference, and that's where the problem is.
1: Yeah, and I guess we should just put a button on this by saying, um, this is pretty, we all are laughing about it, making fun of it, but, and I think the American people are, but it's also pretty serious when uh, one half of the Congress cannot operate and hasn't hasn't operated for the last three weeks, right? And there's some important business that has to be done. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Uh, take a quick break and get back into some of the other political news of the week. Uh, <laughs> uh, the latest on Donald Trump, the latest on Sidney Powell, and other things with our panelists, Sarah Wire from the Los Angeles Times, Gabe Benedetti from Ma- uh, the New York Magazine, and Philip Bump, the Washington Post. A quick break, and we'll be right back. And today's podcast, today's roundtable, we take time out to salute once again Jose Andres and the great people of the World Central Kitchen. You know it, if there's a crisis anywhere on the planet, they are there helping the people in need as World Central Kitchen is now on the ground in Israel and on the ground in southern Gaza, helping both Israelis and Palestinians in need. They call themselves the chefs for the people. The chefs for the people in trouble, I guess, is more like it. Uh, And certainly they need our help, and there's no better way. And I think the only way that I know of to help them is, as I've uh, urged you to do several times before in a moment of crisis, go to their website, World Central Kitchen, wck.org, wck.org. Uh we all want to know at a time like this how we can help. This is how you can help. WCK.org and send Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen whatever help you can.
2: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash podcasts. That's Amazon.com slash podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies.
1: We're back on today's podcast here, the Bill Press Pod. Great to welcome our back, our panelists uh, for today's roundtable. Philip Bump joins us from the Washington Post, national columnist. Gabe De Benedetti, national correspondent for New York Magazine, and Sarah Weyer, Justice Department, national security, and Washington accountability reporter. Whew, that's a, a big, a lot to cover there uh, for the Los Angeles Times. So, um, Sarah. Donald Trump operating uh, in New York, uh, in in the courtroom in New York, I should say. Uh, he is complaining about having to be there, even though it was his choice to be there. He didn't, I think, uh, wasn't required to show up. And also complaining about this is keeping him off the campaign trail. Uh, <laughs> But Donald Trump was asked by reporters, so you're here today, are you going to come back tomorrow? And Donald Trump had a different excuse for not showing up the next day. Anyhow, here's the former president. But this is what we go through because they want to keep me here instead of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and lots of other great places. Will you pass tomorrow, New Probably not. I think we're having a very big tournament, tournament, professional golf tournament at Darrell's. Yeah, big golf tournament at the RAL tomorrow, so he's not going to be able to be in the courtroom. <laughs> but the president, former president has had a, a partial gag order placed on him here. He's told he's got to appear in court on March 24 next year. That's when the trial here uh, on uh, attempts to overthrow the government is going to happen. Um, so I guess, how do you assess Donald Trump's—doesn't n- seem to be doing too well in court decisions so far, let me put it that way. Sarah?
0: You know he's having a rough year in court. Uh, <laughs> um, the you know it, it's interesting that he's choosing to be present in New York City with a case involving you know his wealth, honestly, and his ability to to portray himself as a a you know prominent businessman um, when he doesn't have to be in court, um, but he is going to be required to be sitting in a courtroom for. Many weeks uh, next year, um, when that trial starts in March, right before, uh, after, uh, right before Super Tuesday. I mean, that's going to take him out of the campaign trail for about a month. Um, but you know, he, looking towards those trials, uh, he now has a second gag order that was placed on him this week uh, by the judge in the DC 2020 election case, um, mm-hmm. who told him that he can't uh, speak online or in person about uh, witnesses about the judge and her staff or about the uh, the special counsel and his staff. Uh, she took real issue with him calling uh, Jack Smith's staff thugs and you know it in some ways it's, it's going to limit how he can portray himself in the context of these trials because he's really framed his campaign around they are trying to silence me because they're really trying to silence Republicans in the United States. And if he can't go out there and say that uh, the way he wants to, this, you know, kind of complicate his message.
1: Uh, to say the least, complicated message. Uh, gave national political reporter for New York Magazine, if the front runner for the Republican Party is in a courtroom all day long, what does that mean for the 2024? I mean, again, uncharted territory, but looking ahead, what will this mean for the 2024 election?
3: Well, in terms of the Republican primary, I mean, not much, as we've seen. Obviously, this could change, but the primary right. sh- shaping primary. The primary, is just simply not, not uh, changed at all, despite the fact that Trump has been in and out of courtrooms for the last few months. He's still winning the primary race by quite a lot. You know, not as much in some of the early states. So, of course, there's still some room for change. But let's not kid ourselves about the overall shape of this thing. He is currently running away with the Republican nomination Uh, in
1: the primary, in the primary, in the primary.
3: So then there's the question of what happens, you know, a few months from now, assuming as it certainly looks like that it's going to be a matchup between Biden and Trump. Once again, Uh, there's no doubt that if he is in and out of the courtroom, that is going to be where a ton of the focus is of, of the entire political media in a lot of the country. Uh, I don't, You know, we don't know, obviously, how that plays politically, but we have certain uh, indications. He has really leaned into the idea, the former president has, that every time he's indicted, every time he shows up at a courtroom, it's good for him. Now, that may be true among the Republican base, but those numbers do not bear out whatsoever with independents, certainly not with Democrats, uh, and and, and even with a number of Republicans who don't necessarily love him, but are open to him. So, you know, certainly from the perspective of the Democrats, they're looking at this as not necessarily something they want to talk about a lot because they don't want to feed into uh, Trump's idea, political idea that he is being, you know, persecuted by the liberals or by the Democrats. Um, But, you know, they're obviously not going to shy from the notion that this is a former president who is on trial uh, and possibly going to be found guilty, uh, you know, before the election. Uh, That's going to be front and center, period. Uh,
1: So, Philip, let's shift to another person who's been uh, very closely linked with Donald Trump uh, in the attempts to overthrow the 2020 uh, results of the 2020 election. Um, One of the loudest voices at the time insisting that the election was stolen. Here is attorney Sidney Powell back in 2020. President Trump won this election in a landslide. It's going to be irrefutable. Patriots are coming forward faster than we can collect their information with the testimony they're willing to give under oath about how their votes were stolen and how the machines operated. They were updated after the election. We've got statistical evidence that shows hundreds of thousands of votes votes being just put in and replicated. There needs to be a massive criminal investigation, and I'm going to release the Kraken. Well, there is a criminal investigation, and she has just pled guilty uh, this week, Philip, surprising everybody. Um, She's got six years probation. She has to pay a fine, and she might be called on to testify against Donald Trump. Right. Uh, Pretty significant development, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating.
2: She... (sighs) I think people under-recognize the extent to which she was putting forward really deranged nonsense after 2020. I mean, just really, really off-the-wall garbage. Uh, and yet, even after that, and even after Tucker Carlson went on air on Fox News and was like, this lady like, gave us no evidence, it's really hard to believe the stuff she's saying. Like Even after that, Donald Trump sat in the Oval Office and was like, hmm, maybe we should make her special counsel to, to look into all this, right? I mean, she is really emblematic of the Extent to which all of the election fraud stuff really went off the rails very quickly after twenty twenty, just because it was useful to Donald Trump, that she now has taken this guilty plea. Obviously, there's lots of ways to interpret it. I think it's important to remember that she's not the only one who has already faced some sort of sanction. There was the you know there was the giant settlement by Fox News. Rudy Giuliani faces multiple lawsuits. His his reputation's in tatters. The entire two thousand mule thing with Dinesh D'Souza completely exploded. Like there has been some accountability. She's not the first here. Uh, But it really is this marker of the fact that it's 2023, almost three years after she stood up at the Republican National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C., and alleged that dead Venezuelan dictator had a role in throwing the 2020 election. Like the fact that it took three years by itself is remarkable Uh, that that we couldn't by December 1st of 2020 say, actually, this is not someone who should be treated seriously. And maybe we should look into whether or not she violated laws in, in the claims she was making.
1: Sarah should Donald Trump be worried about what how what testimony she might give uh, and 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 did he do you think he was surprised by this guilty plea
0: I'm not sure he slept so well last night um,
1: <laughs> you know
0: Philip really capitalized on why this was in some ways kind of a masterstroke for Bonnie Willis because you know people really question why uh, Cindy Powell was only charged in regard to one aspect of this racketeering case the the breach of coffee county georgia when her involvement was so much uh, broader you know she was an advisor to President Trump past the uh, time where her, his campaign officially split with her. Um, she was filing all of these lawsuits. She was in close contact with Rudy Giuliani, even though they reportedly don't get along. Um, you know, she visited the White House over and over in December. And she can speak to every aspect of this case. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure it's just Trump who should be worried, but also Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and some of the other big (laughs) names associated with this. And, you know, this is the only place where these people are facing criminal charges at this point.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: The feds Fed's haven't brought charges against Giuliani or Mark Meadows as of, you know, 9 9 AM. But, you know, there's a possibility that that could come down the pike, but right now the biggest threat is Fulton County, Georgia.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Gabe, you already spoke to this a little bit. I just want to touch back uh, it, it, that in terms of the GOP primary, all of these troubles we've been talking about with Donald Trump, all these uh, <laughs> bad developments—not certainly not good developments—in his legal on the legal side have not impacted him at all it seems in the republican primary uh, to which i almost have to ask you is this republican primary still going on you know we we haven't heard anything about it or from any of them for like the last 2 weeks is it is it in fact over
3: <laughs> well you could argue probably that it was over before it really even started there are some people <laughs> yeah. you know like chris christie out there who talk about this stuff but the main people who are opposing donald trump simply don't really talk about uh these these legal issues, or or a number of the things that you might think uh, would crack into his support. So it's pretty simple. Uh, he's running a number against a number of people who would love to succeed him, but the people who uh, have a real shot at being in that position, according to the polls, or who would have that um, you know who would have that shot, simply aren't really challenging him in any real way. Uh, voters want. Republican primary voters want to support Donald Trump, so that's what they're going to do, uh, you know, we should stop assuming that any day now something is going to crack. Uh, we should have learned our lesson on that, you know, eight years ago.
1: Right. And one f- quick footnote here before we move on to your favorite story of the week. We talked last week about the new senator from California, Alfonso Butler, and speculating whether or not she might run for the seat on her own. Uh, to succeed Senator Diane Feinstein. she announced yesterday that she will not, because she said, uh, serving in the United States Senate, uh, while she's uh, very excited to do so for about a year or so, that overall, she said, quote, it is not the greatest use of my voice, which I think says a lot about (coughs) the esteem that some people hold the United States Congress in these days. She chose not to run. For on her own for a full term as United States Senator. And with that, there is always, with so much going on uh, in all of our work, one story that stops us in our tracks, at least momentarily to weep or to to laugh or to just uh, scratch our heads, uh, gets our attention. We call it our favorite story of the week. Many people tell us it's their favorite part of our reporters' roundtable. So Uh, Let's start off. Philip, we're going to ask you to go first, please. It's always good to go first, because that means no one can steal your
2: stories. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think the story this week that came out that is, is really, really useful in understanding uh, current American politics uh, comes from a local TV station in D.C., which looked at the records uh, of the deployment of Virginia National Guardsmen to the border. So Glenn Youngkin, who's sort of kept his, tried to keep the door open for 2024 as much as possible back in May, uh, signed this directive sending uh Virginia National Guardsmen to the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, both to help, you know, stem the the influx of immigrants, but also because of fentanyl and and, and the role of fentanyl in Virginia and, and deaths in Virginia, which of course is very serious. But obviously, you know, for anyone who understands what's happening at the border, having people stand and prevent people from crossing rivers to come to the United States, that's not how fentanyl is coming in. So what this local TV station did is went back and looked actually at the record of this deployment and found they, that, that the, the guardsmen sent by Virginia had found literally zero fentanyl on immigrants who they had stopped coming across the border, uh-huh. which is, of course, because fentanyl comes in through existing checkpoints. That's how it enters the United States, as anyone knows, but it's a really good lens into, A, the ways in which the, the fentanyl crisis is misrepresented and used for political purposes, but also, B, how this drug actually is smuggled into the U.S. and the difficulty of actually stopping
1: it. Yeah. And I guess, C, right, the way politicians exploit this issue oh, yes. despite <laughs> the facts, right? To exactly. help their own, That's very true. To help their own case. Uh, thank you, Philip. I, yeah, I missed that story. And here I am in Washington. and didn't see that story. Thank you. Sarah, uh, what caught your attention?
0: Uh, mine's from you know out on the west coast. I, I hate to always pick something from the L.A. Times, but this time I, I, I caved and did it. Um, <laughs> it's a, uh, a piece about an, uh the removal of the largest dam in uh, the largest dam removal in California history. Whoa! And restoring the way of life of some of the indigenous tribes in Northern California. And it centers on uh, the runs of salmon who died. We're talking about tens of thousands of dead salmon floating down the river uh, through their territory. And the the quote that made me sit back was as this young woman is watching thousands of uh, salmon float down the river. She says, it's like seeing your family perish in front of you. I would capture it, compare it to a massacre, really, in terms of the emotions and the trauma that it has caused for us. Um, It's a wonderful piece. The tribes have been fighting for decades to have these dams removed, and this was a big moment for them. Uh,
1: An important story for me, uh, because I worked for the man, uh, Senator Peter Baer, in the California State Legislature, who authored the Wild Rivers Bill uh, to save the three out of 54 Five original rivers that flowed from the mountains to the sea in California, all but three of them had been dammed and destroyed and the Wild River Bill saved the last three. So glad to hear they're tearing some of those dams down uh, in California. And Gabe De Benedetti, uh help us out with your favorite story.
3: Sure. I'm going to go a little bit less weighty than my esteemed colleagues here today. Um, my story this week is uh, one written by my colleague Reeves Weidman in a new, York, new issue of New York Magazine. It's called Scoop Dreams. It's a profile of uh, Shams Charania, who is a very famous and completely relentless journalist about the minutiae of uh, roster moves in the National Basketball Association. Um, the reason that this is interesting is that this is a certain kind of reporting that this guy does that exists primarily on Twitter. Um, but, the, but the reason that the profile is interesting is that it raises huge questions about what access journalism is these days, um, what is the future of you know Twitter-based journalism, but really importantly, because this guy works for The Athletic, which is now owned by The New York Times, how traditional newsrooms are tackling this new era of celebrity reporters, reporters who have side mm-hmm. deals, uh, and really what second-to-second insider reporting means in a world where Everyone thinks they're an insider. Anyone thinks they can be a journalist. Uh, and Certainly, everyone thinks they can be a celebrity if they just tweet enough about it uh, or about whatever they decide to tweet about. So very interesting story. Uh, it's called Scoop Dreams.
1: We'll leave mm-hmm. it there. Yeah. Uh, reflecting again, um, the, the, the conversations, decisions that are being made uh, throughout every newsroom in America today. Really. Absolutely. Uh, the new thing. Yeah. Well, I want to go from my favorite story uh, back to um, my state of California, too. California, uh, we all, always brag about, is uh, on many issues ahead of the nation. Well, California is now once ahead ahead of the nation. Um, most states have an official bird or an official flower. As of this week, California now has an official state bat. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Governor <laughs> Gavin Newsom signed legislation Uh, naming the pallid bat, P-A-L-L-I-D, the pallid bat as the official state bat. Uh, Not only this, and this is what caught my attention when I saw the story, to honor the bat, which spends a lot of its life hanging upside down, Gavin Newsom signed this legislation upside down. (laughs) <laughs> which I thought my picture was him in the governor's office <laughs> hanging from the ceiling, signing this paper. I must admit I was disappointed to find out that what he did was he turned the page upside down. So he signed, signed it upside down, but he himself was not hanging upside down when I did so. <laughs> uh, I should, I should admit, however, that uh, um, I exaggerated when I said California is the first in the nation, there is also an official state bat in the state of Hawaii, and in the District of Columbia. So, there you go, bats galore. Yes, well, and with that, a big thank you to uh, everything we covered today. to Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Gabe Benedetti from the New York from New York Magazine, and Sarah Wire, Los Angeles Times. Good to have all of you back on the roundtable. Thank you for your time. And your insights. And thanks to all of you good friends for joining us today. Now, have a great weekend, and then come back and see us on Tuesday. We're going to be talking again on Tuesday with our foreign policy guru, national security analyst Joe Sirencioni, to get the latest, uh, the update on the war in the Middle East. Uh, and with that, again, have a great weekend. Uh, we'll see you on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.